uh, the four-wheel drive or the man van like myself. Thank you for coming and uh, braving the, uh, the weather. I don't think it's going to be too bad at all, but you know how Midwesterners are at the, uh, the thought of under 40-degree uh, rain instantly freaks everyone out. So uh, welcome. It's great to have you here. No matter who you are, uh, where you come from, where you grew up, all of us have a standard. We, uh, we all live by certain standards, um, some high, some low, right? Um, I know sometimes we question whether or not some people live, in fact, by a standard, but whether you like it or not, we all do. We have certain principles or uh, characteristic things that drive our decision-making. I have a question for you with all of that being said. What changes you, right? So you have this standard, this, these principles that you live by, again, high or low, uh, high moral, low moral, whatever you want to call it. What is able to change you? And I'm not talking about silly things like uh, all, all growing up, I was, a, I was a high school athlete, played basketball, football, baseball, and ran track, which I shouldn't have done. But anyway, I, I wore Nikes in high school, okay? And the rest of you guys, you wore Nikes growing up, right? Jordans were big. But there was something that happened to me uh, like, like senior year where all of a sudden I got a taste of a Puma. You know what I'm saying? And, and whenever, here's what I've learned. Whenever you try on a Puma for the first time, you do not go back. I mean, it's like it's putting on the shoe of gold is what it feels like, Right? So, so that, something changed me in that. I'm not talking about silly things like that where, you know, you, you had this season where you enjoyed pepperoni, now you like sausage. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about deeper things. You had this kind of this standard, this principle that you lived by, and then soon all of that began to change for whatever uh, uh, reason, right? So what is it for you? In thinking through what changes us, I think there are three main things that cause us to shift a belief or a thought or a practice. The first is people. Relationships, the pressure of people, the thought of people, the conversations with others, whatever that may be, people are a huge reason why we take this standard high or low and we move over here. So people is one, right? Uh, the second is, is if something causes us some kind of profit, okay? So we will change, shift, or move if something is very profitable to us, no matter what it is. So in other words, there's a certain price that we can be bought at that changes the principle that we were living by and moves us over here. And the third is something inside, something unexplainable, a a complete like heart change. That takes all of these standards that we were a living by or adhering to, and all of a sudden we become something else. Now, if you're like me, I love a great story. Anybody else? And if you're like me in a great story, the necessity to a phenomenal story is an awesome main character. Braveheart wouldn't be Braveheart without William Wallace. You know what I'm saying, right? Gladiator wouldn't be Gladiator without Russell Crowe, Maximus, Maximus. Like, all of these stories need strong main characters, and we as we've been studying through the scripture, have an incredibly strong main character in Daniel that appears like he is unchanging. It's as if, as easy as you and I change for multiple reasons, we have this standard and then we move over here, it it appears like Daniel, like nothing changes him. Life circumstance, profitability, nothing changes him. He's just, he's steady. He's just, he's steady as an oak, as my grandpa would say. Like roots are deep, nothing can move him. And tonight, my friends, we get to finish the ever-famous Daniel and the lion's den. That's right. But 
before we do that, let's recap a little bit of this unchanging, unmoving character. All right? The, uh, the empire of the Babylonians falls in one drunken night. And the Medo-Persian army takes over. And the new king, which we saw last week was called Darius, or as I proposed to you, Cyrus comes in, sends a lot of the Jewish exiles who had been uh, exiled to Babylon, sends them back to Jerusalem. But there's a few that remain, and one of them is, is Daniel. He's given tremendous power. He becomes one of the three presidents over top of the entire, uh, the entire uh, Medo-Persian empire. This is a huge empire, the biggest empire in the world, and Daniel's one of the four top people. Now, this causes all the folks underneath Daniel to get very jealous. And so what do they do? They conspire against him. And so they do, as I said last week, this huge character search. They dig into his closet. And they see if there is anything in there that they can go to the king and say, you know what, Daniel isn't who you thought he was. But as we saw last week, uh, they come back and they can't find anything except his God. And here's what they say. They say, we have no means to go against this man, Daniel, except as it pertains to his God. And so they set up essentially this trap. They go to Cyrus or Darius, and they say, all right, O king, you're so great, you're so awesome. Let's tickle your pride a little bit. Here's what you should do, king. You should make a decree for 30 days if anyone prays to anybody else except you in the den. How does that sound, king? Well, doesn't sound like a bad idea. I mean, I'm a pretty incredible king, right? And so what he does is he signs this document instantly condemning anyone who prays to any other god except Cyrus or Darius to the, to the lion's den. Now, the scripture told us last week that upon hearing this in his ears, Daniel, being the great man of integrity, character, principle, he is unchanged, unwavered by anything that's happened to him from the time when we met him when he was 14, 15, 16 to now over 80. And so he heads up to his room and like he has always done, he gets on his knees and the scripture says he pleads and petitions, the scripture says, his God. Nothing will change me. You can't move me. You can, you can sign a decree as a king, but I must petition. I must plead. I must commune with my God. And so I sat back last week and we ended with a challenge of prayer. This man is a man of prayer. And apparently, life circumstance, profitability, anything, nothing changes him because this man is connected to God. And so we sat back and I was like, well, where do we start? Anytime I teach on prayer, people are always asking me, so where do we begin? And I challenged you last week to pray, plead, petition against the two what I call prayer killers. Unbelief, you won't pray if you don't believe, and shame. You won't approach the throne of God if you feel condemned. Anyone? And so we've been praying this prayer that Matt's already prayed tonight. Put it up here, the detox prayer. God, I want to believe you are able. Please help my unbelief, which comes from Mark 9 and this uh, picture of this father who brings uh, his, uh, his son who has an unclean spirit. And then Psalm 51 two, wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the challenge was all week long from December 8th to January 8th, we're pleading this. I've probably prayed this prayer in the last week, I don't know, 157 times, not that I've been counting, right? And, and this prayer is like what, what starts to happen is your sin starts to be purged. Those of you that are being consistent with this, you know what's happening. 
There's been moments where I've been sitting and my journal's been open and all of a sudden sins have been being revealed in my life that I didn't know were there. God is detoxing me. The things of the flesh are coming out. I feel like I, I, I'm changing. I feel like God is morphing my heart, morphing my character to become more unwavering, right? It's been a powerful thing. But before we dig in and finish the lines then tonight, I want to ask you this. If a decree was made today, all right, friends, no more prayer except to this God over here. Can I ask you this? Would it really change anything for you? Would it really change your current rhythm? You can't pray to anyone except this dude over here. Does it change anything you've currently been doing? It's like, well, that's really no different. I pretty much am, I'm not praying anyway, so you can make whatever decree you want because it doesn't really affect me. This decree doesn't affect Daniel in his practice, but it's going to affect his circumstance. You see what I'm saying? And so that's where we're at tonight. They've caught him. They're uh, getting ready to conspire against him and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6 as we complete Daniel and the lion's den, my friends. So anxious. Great to have you here. Again, if it's your first time, welcome and thank you for braving the freezing communistic reign. Verse 12, here we go. Verse 12 in Daniel chapter 6. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, concerning the thing that the king had set, the law, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any other god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be what? Which cannot be revoked. Interesting thing about this culture. Listen to this. There's a, a Diodorus is an ancient historian. Everyone uh, name your son that Diodorus. Kind of you know, kind of has a flow to it. Diodorus writes in uh, the late of uh, 300s in the Medo-Persian Empire uh, how a man was um, was sentenced to death. He was later found innocent, and they killed him anyway. Because in this culture. Judgment is judgment. You can't go back. A law is a law. You cannot. When something has been signed by the king, when something has been set in stone, so to speak, you can't go back. And so they come to the king after having seen Daniel pray, Hey, king, didn't you sign this decree? Didn't this happen? You did that, right? Because if you did, you can't go back on a king. It's a law. It's done. And the law, we would say this, is binding. The law in the Medo-Persian Empire was so strong. You could not, in the Medo-Persian Empire, escape the law. A law was a law. And once you broke it, you were condemned, whatever it meant, for condemnation in that particular circumstance. Are you with me? This is huge in our understanding of the story. The law is binding, verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the what? The exiles from Judah, this is still coming up some 65 years later, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. He prays three times a day. Well, the problem with their, um, their, uh, their, their, their whole problem with Daniel is that it's only half true. Uh, they say that, that Daniel pays no attention to the king. Well, that's not true. Daniel has gotten favor from the king and has become one of the top four most powerful people in the entire world at the time. So clearly he pays attention to the king. But they are right in saying he pays no attention to the injunction. You tell me to pray to you? I don't think so. I pray to my God. 
My God's who I pray to. My God is who I plead to. That is who I'm concerned about. Then the king, verse 14, look at this. When he heard these words, was much distressed, and look at this, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. The number one most powerful person in the world is is struck down by his own law and the number one most powerful man in the whole world can't figure out a way to find a loophole or get around the own law that he made. You see how binding the law is. No other time in history do we see, if, if you're a king, you make a law, everything changes. You say dead, they die. You say live, they live. Whatever you say goes. But in this circumstance, he says a law is a law. And so the the most powerful king in the world can't change. He doesn't have the power to change the whole law system. But the scripture says he's distressed. Why? Because him and Daniel, they've become friends. They've had some kind of relationship. Uh, it's, it's thought that Cyrus is like 62, 63, right? And uh, Daniel is 80 plus. You just get this cool picture of these two like older men. Anyone else just love older men, right? Right? Anyone else just, you know, you got, right? I, I, I have a huge, and again, I, I, I just, I love older, wiser men. I want to be around them. I want to learn from them. I want to soak up their wisdom, right? So you just get this picture of the king of the modern world, Darius or Cyrus, and, and Daniel. They're just building this relationship. And so when he finds out that his law is going to kill Daniel, it gives him angst. He's like, there's got, there's got to be a way out of this. Like there's got to be some loophole here. So he's like turning tables. He's trying to find a way that he can get out of this law. But he can't find it. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, King, uh, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Verse 16. Then the king commanded as he had to. And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Okay, let's do a little work here. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a den of lions, uh, or a lion for that matter. Um, okay, it, but, but we're, we're, this isn't like, this is real lions, right? This isn't like an antelope that's in there that, that's called a lion biblically, okay? This, this is a real true lion. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, this was actually a, a common practice of execution, you throw some lions in a cave, you starve them, and then very, um, very conveniently, you chuck and duck whatever the condemned person is in this cave, and pretty soon they become like a prawn in the Amazon, and they just, this, this whole thing is disintegrated. That was the whole concept. Now, I want to explain to you the, the den. You would have this side entrance, and, and this is true stuff. You would have this side entrance where like the zookeeper could come in and like clean up after things had been totaled in there. And over the side entrance would be a stone. So they would roll the stone away and they would entice the lions with some food while like this poor little soul had to come in and clean that room. You know what I'm saying? This is all true. Like I don't want to be that dude ever, right? There probably, there were like 50% survival rate of that guy, let alone anything else, right? So you would then roll the stone away. You would put the stone back in this kind of this hillside cave. And at the top would be this, this like chain length fence almost. So whoever was being executed down below, it could be witnessed, watched, seen, all right? 
This is an intense way of execution. It's very fast. And this is real stuff. Okay, I know many of you who grew up in the church, Daniel Lyons then was on some green felt board, right? Where Daniel like gets dropped in this very cozy cave with a couch and air conditioning, right? It's not the picture here. This is ancient Near East, real execution. The king, uh, Cyrus, throws Daniel in the lion's den. And look at what happens uh, right after this. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, exclamation point, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now listen, I need you to be here for a moment with me, please. Can you just try to picture this? Right. The den is dark. Again, like in pictures, it looks like this big like lit up like stage or something, right? It's dark. Stone, this little hole in the top. Daniel gets put in there. Can you hear the breath of the lions, right? Like it's dark. And so he's sitting there as he knows these lions are all real, true animals all around him. And uh, most pictures portray uh, the fact that there's like two, like two, two or three lions in here and they're a family, right? And they're like all happy lions. I don't think there were two or three, and we're going to see why at the end of this story. I think there were a lot of lions in here. And as was the common practice in the ancient Near East, there would be a ton of starving lions in this place. And so picture yourself dropped in a den that's completely dark, and all you hear are these lions walking around with breathing, coming out with like breath coming out of their nostrils. How do you think you'd handle that, anyone? Right? Check, please. Right? You're like, get me. Get me out of here. And, and, and escape was fail-proof. Uh, the, the den, the better Aramaic word is pit. It was a pit. And there was no escape. In fact, they designed it in such a way, and I did some research on this. They designed it in such a way where you couldn't climb up the gate and the stone would be so huge, like the tomb of Christ, that there was no escape. Once you were in there, it was over. Listen. And so though, there he sits, all alone. An 80 plus year old man in a real den with real lions. And you would think that that would be one of the most lonely places that you could ever imagine. But is it really? On the flip side, we do see a lonely case. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. Okay, this isn't fasting as we think about it. This isn't some spiritual discipline, okay? He's, have you ever been so anxious that you can't eat? Of course you have, right? Have you, have you ever been like stirred up so much? I know it's hard to believe for some of us, right? But stirred up so much that you can't even eat? This is this kind of fasting. He pushes away all of the fasting. In an interesting way of phrasing this, no diversions were brought to him. <laughs> well, what's a diversion? Well, to a king, uh, that could mean several things, right? Like, the, here come the dancing girls, right? You got, the, you got a wine party. Like, you know, any, any, like the magic show comes out, right? Like, to a king, they would entertain him often at night with several different means. He says, no diversions. No food. Look at, look at this. And, and, and sleep, it says, fled from him. He spent all night fasting, no entertainment, and he couldn't sleep. 
So you get the picture in your mind. One man, God-fearing, all alone in a dark den, hearing the breath of lions all around him. And you just get this picture that he's sleeping soundly. And I'm not talking about the felt board, like sleeping on the lion's paws, and, you know, everyone's like, he's like petting the lions, right? And they're like playing catch inside, like, here, you know, here, foo-foo. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But you get the picture, whether he's sleeping or not, that you got a man in that cave who's there and he's content. And then on the flip side, you have the one that sentenced him. No contentment, no peace, all angst, all tension, sitting in his palace, the king of the modern world, wrecked about the fact that he knows there is this man that he condemned, that he's built relationship with, that he's come to see. And apparently, Daniel has told Cyrus about his God. Because what does he say? May your God deliver you. I don't know how this is going to happen, but may he. It was like his last plead. And so look at this, verse 19. Then at the break of day... I know many of you don't ever see this, but this is when the sun comes up, okay? Right? Have you seen this recently? Last year? Okay, good enough, right? At the break of day is when the sun rises. It's actually a pretty, po- pretty powerful moment. I would suggest it sometimes, okay? At the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And you get this picture like he doesn't go guarded. He just, he just runs down there in complete angst the moment the sun comes up. And as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. I love this picture because when Daniel's dropped in the den, the scripture says nothing about him crying like a baby. You see? And Daniel's dropped in and he let out a shriek of anguish. Doesn't happen. In fact, through this whole thing, does Daniel say a thing? No. Does Daniel do a thing? No. Daniel's just in a den. But here comes the king, powerful king Osiris, who's just smoked the Assyrian, or, or the Babylonians. And he comes and he shrieks out, the Aramaic implies, shrieks out in a loud voice. The king, de- uh, the king declared to, to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, all right, let's, let's just talk, let's talk movies for a moment, right? Uh, James Cameron, didn't he? He did the music to, for the Titanic, didn't he? Something, right? Okay. Did he? Composer. He's a famous, he's a composer though, isn't he? I don't know what he did. Is he not? Is he a director? What does he do? Let's picture that he was a, a composer, all right? All right? Work with me. This is the moment where like the king's on the top of the den. Are you in there, man? Right? This is the moment where the music, you know, what's going to happen? Is he dead in there? Is he mangled to pieces? Is there no recognition? The music's coming up. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. So the king's like down there and he's looking in to see what's going on. And all of a sudden he hears the voice of not a boy, but an 80 plus year old man say, say, O king, live forever. And I want you to take note of the O. Interesting, right? It's a vowel, right? It's, O king, O king, live forever. Look what he says. My God. So he calls Darius, O king. And then he says, my God. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Daniel says, my God. My God. The God whom I serve, the God whom I love, the God who I worship, the God who I follow, the God who I've been loving ever since I was a boy. My God came down in his sovereignty and shut the mouths of the lions. And so here I am, blameless before you. And he's not saying that he was perfect, but he was saying in this, in this circumstance, he had done nothing wrong. He had prayed to his God, and he knows, above all else, that God's rules rule. And God says, follow me and worship me and obey me. And so he says, I must, no matter what you say, king, my God. Do you see this picture? This is one of the most powerful pictures in all of Daniel. When Daniel, down in the den, his first reaction isn't, hey, throw me a rope, you know, get me out of here. His first reaction from the den is, my God saved me, my God delivered me, my God sent an angel, shut the mouths of these lions, and here I am, living proof of a good, gracious, holy God. So what if he would have died? What if the lions would have killed Daniel? We could say kind of anticlimactic, right? That wasn't the story we grew up with, right? All of a sudden Daniel gets toasted in there. But many have. Many have come from the same moments where they follow God, obey God, serve God in the face of a tyrant and they find themselves not able to speak because they're with him in glory, you see? Is God any less good, any less gracious, any less sovereign, any less loving in those moments? And I believe Daniel would say, no way. In fact, if I would have died, it wouldn't have mattered because I'm just serving God, that's what I do. So in the den, he calls out, my God. Now, this is where, like, this is where we stop in Sunday school. All right? The story doesn't continue. Everyone's good to go. Daniel's out of the den. You know, you know Daniel and Darius are high-fiving. Everyone's happy. The band's playing. You know, here come the diversions again. Look at what happens, all right? Then the king was exceedingly, verse 23, was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel comes out, was taken out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had, what does the scripture say? Trusted in his God. He trusts God, God is merciful on him and spares his life. And then verse 24 gets a little tricky. Then the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast in the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Um, what, what this does is cause us to not believe in many of the theories that are out there. The lions weren't hungry. Okay? Well, that's clearly not true. Um, there were only a few, and so Daniel was able to, like, play cat and mouse, like, hide-and-go-seek all night in the cave. There were a lot of them. Why? Because there were 120 satraps, and let's say 20 of them were, uh, you know, really were at the, at the helm of this, and their wives, that's 40, and their kids, let's call it 60. 60 real people dropped in the den. And the scripture says before they hit the ground, their bones were crushed. Uh, two lions cannot do work on 60 people that quickly. And so at the moment, you're like starting to feel for Darius, right? You're like, man, this is, like Darius is coming around. Now he just kills men, women, and, chil- and children? Like, what's the deal? The same way that he followed the law and the law was binding in the first place, 
this is a, this is a Medo-Persian uh, law. If someone who, whom you've accused comes up innocent, comes up unharmed, then you find yourself condemned. And so just how he followed the law the first time, now the law continues to be binding. And can you picture this scene? Did you learn this in Sunday school, those of you who grew up in Sunday school? Was that on the felt board, right? The guards like, you know, dropping the families in there? No, but this is real stuff. It's not a cartoon, it's a real story. And look what happens at the end of all of this. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations, and languages. Now, we've heard this rhetoric all throughout Daniel. This means the people of the empire. He writes them all. Listen, everyone, I need to tell you something. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear the God of Daniel. He makes a decree. Everyone must fear and tremble. Now, the thing that Darius doesn't understand in his ignorance of God is that no matter how you command people to act, you can't make people love God, but we see at least here his heart. His heart is these people must worship this God because this God isn't some playing God. He's not just an actor upstairs somewhere like playing chess. This is a real God who saved Daniel's life and I witnessed it. So everyone needs to fear and tremble him. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. A pagan king making the decree that my kingdom will fear the God of Daniel. We use the word fear. It doesn't say serve or worship. He uses the word fear. He's powerful. So let's fear him. And the scripture ending this first part of Daniel, verse 28, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Confusion? It seems like there's two people. The problem is in the, in the Aramaic, the end the reign is more because of the rain, making both Darius and Cyrus the same person. See what I'm saying? Now, how many of you guys have ever heard of deja vu? You guys know the feeling? We have crazy feelings in our culture, don't we? Um, the feeling of like uh, the staff and I were just on an elevator in a, in a hospital not too long ago. And uh, we, we experienced like the stomach, like the elevator was like broke as a joke or something. I don't know, something was going on with it. You know when the elevator drops, or better, like a roller coaster, and you just get that, that stomach feeling, you know, you know what, guys know what I'm talking about, just weird feelings that we get to experience all the time. Deja vu is one of the craziest feelings, isn't it? One of the craziest senses, where you find yourself in this room, and you're like, I think I've been here before yesterday, but I'm not sure. And then pretty soon, you, like, you're, you're in Inception, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just, you're DiCaprio, and like, you're there, and everything's, you know, right? You, you get that sense. Listen, I step back from this story. Never before, but now. And I, I get deja vu. I get the sense that, um, have you ever watched a movie before and you found yourself in the story? Like you got so lost in the movie that you soon became the character. Have you ever had that sense before? Listen to this. The den is the gospel. 
Never before have I seen this. Never before have I studied this. But the den is one of, one of the most powerful pictures of the gospel outside of the gospel story itself. Daniel finds himself in a den that's in Aramaic, the pit. He's in there because the law is, is, is binding, can't get out. The law can't do anything for him. In fact, the king tries to make the law and switch the law, but the law is holding him there. And the pit's a lonely place. It's desolate, it's dark. He hears the breath of what? Of a lion. Makes me think of another scripture that says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Daniel, alone, finds himself in this dark, desolate place called the den, which the psalmist writes, in the pit of desolation is what sin feels like. It's a pit. There's no escape. I'm looking everywhere. How can I get out of here? Have you ever felt that before? As I'm beginning to read through this story, I'm like... I'm relating to this. I felt before like I've been in the pit. No escape. The law. Binding on me. I can't follow it. I can't do it. I can't appease God by this law. There's no rope coming down. Letting my escape. Everything's bombarded. I can't get out. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever sensed that? Do you know that feeling? And it's the feeling of no escape. Listen. I was sharing this with the guys earlier. All my life, I feel like the church protected me. I feel like they built like four walls around me. And I feel like their biggest fear was that me growing up, that I would never, ever have to look in the eyes of someone who was in the pit. That I would never have to look in the eyes of someone who there, who there was no escape for. Because I felt like the church was like, you know what, if he gets in that situation, he's, he's going to get disheartened. He's going to be fearful of what will happen to him. But what I'm realizing now more and more is the opportunity to look real people in the eyes who are in the pit like I was. And you can look through their eyes into their heart and you know what they're feeling. It's the feeling of no escape. I can't get out. My life feels like it's going to crumble. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no money, nowhere to go. I'm, I'm, I'm gripped by my sin. You know that look. And I've had the opportunity many times over the last year, just like you, to look real people in the eyes that are really in the pit of sin. No escape, no hope, completely desolate. And then today, I'm sitting with a good friend of mine who I've just met five, six weeks ago. And I'm looking in those same eyes who before was no escape. And in those same eyes today, I see hope. I see a man whose heart's been changed. Because I see a man who was in the pit. And all of a sudden, not because of anything he did, all of a sudden, a king comes by. A prince of peace, a mighty God, a righteous king. And that king comes by, looks in the pit of despair and desolation, and says, you know what, there's no escape. I can't throw you a rope. You will do nothing to get out of here by yourself. But I, I will do it all. 
my death will mean something. I will sacrifice myself so your pit, the hopelessness, the not feeling, the, the no escape sense, you will get to call me my God. That's the power of the Christ. And so as Daniel sits in there alone, not doing anything, not saying a word, he's done no righteous act, he sits in there. And all of a sudden, only because of God's grace, pretty soon he finds himself on the other side of the pit. Where once he looked up feeling no escape, now he feels complete freedom. I have all hope, there's no means that can bear me down. My God redeemed me. My God saved me. My God is who I worship. And so today, as I sat with his brother, what I realized is the gospel is so real. When we live sheltered lives, not seeing real people in the pit, not seeing real transformation because of Christ, we begin to think that we're in a drama, a play, a movie. And we begin to think that one day, all of a sudden, the actor's gonna, or the director's gonna come down, hit the gavel, and it's gonna be like, alright everyone, like who wants into heaven? And we just start feeling like all of this is just a big show. But what I've realized is, I long to look in the eyes of people who are in the pit, no escape, completely caught in their sin, and then plead and pray that one day I can look through those same eyes and see hope and escape and love because they've been captured by the power of Christ. The gospel is real. This isn't just some Old Testament story or some allusion to a fairy tale. This is our story. This is us, you and I, in the pits. Not saying a word, not doing any righteous act, and Christ comes by. And because of His righteousness and His goodness, looks down and says, You know what? Come here, you're mine. And then we can utter the words on our lips. My God delivered me. It's real. And I don't want to play one more day like it's just some fake fairy tale that we just get to act and one day he'll come back and we all go to heaven. We get the privilege now of seeing the gospel transform lives and it begins with ours. You and I are Daniel. And many of you, you have that sense tonight. You're just like, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm in the pit. I, I feel completely bombarded. There's no escape. Let me tell you, there is. There's hope. There's escape. And this isn't just some show. It's changed my life. It's changing lives in this room. And it's only because of Christ. You see? We're in this story. And hundreds of years before Christ comes, you and I now get to look back on all of this and say, this is the chance that you and I can say, my God, delivered me, saved me. Part of that response of the church is the chance to remember that. To remember for those of you that believed when you were in the pit. And you could hear like, you could hear the clutches of sin around you. And Jesus, as he sat with the disciples, getting ready to die so that you could have escape through him, he breaks the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And know this, when you eat this bread, believe that there's redemption, there's deliverance through me. You can call me my God.
because of my broken body, you see. And then he holds up the cup. And he says, this cup represents the, uh, the new covenant. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, the old covenant said, you have to follow the law. You need to follow the law. The problem was no one could. The law was binding. And it was gripping. And it was choking. And Christ says, my blood is the new covenant, that it's only by grace, through faith, that you have a relationship with my Father. So anytime you drink of this cup, remember me. And remember that you can say, my God. And so I look back at this Old Testament story. A story that I grew up with, a story that I've heard several times. A story that I felt like was just a good miracle. It's a great biblical story. I mean, it's paramount. If David Letterman were doing like top 10 Bible Old Testament stories, like this would be up there, right? And now I finally sit back and I say Daniel chapter 6 is no longer just a miracle that I can never feel or grasp or experience. It's the miracle of salvation in me. It's my story. And maybe it's yours too. So for those of us that claim, follow Christ, repent of sin, this meal is for you tonight to respond. And as you make this walk up here and as you pull off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, what you're saying is, my God delivered me. And for those in here that are looking for escape, you feel bombarded, can I tell you, all of us would love to chat with you afterwards and encourage you. There's so many people in here recently who are feeling that escape through Christ. My God has delivered me. Let's pray together. Um, God, I thank you for the hope that I feel. The freedom that I sense in you. And I praise you, God, that the story of Daniel is not just some rote rhetoric in the Old Testament. God, I thank you that the gospel is real. I thank you that your son really paid a price. I thank you, God, that there's freedom in it. I thank you, God, that I'm not just serving some king that's out there that I can't call my God. I thank you for the personal interaction that I get to have with you through prayer and worship and obedience. And God, I pray that as a church, that you'll give us that deep picture tonight of being in the pit. And because of your saving grace, though we were bound by the law, by your grace we're released. Have escape and freedom. God, would you cause a stirring in our hearts tonight, realizing that there are real people all around us all the time that are in desperate need of hope. And I pray that you'll empower us with no other message, with no confusion, with nothing except you. You're the hope. You're the escape. You're the life. God, give us that sense tonight. Church, let's stand and respond.